Chapter 26. From the Cemetery Girl to the Dark. Date, Sunday, October 6, 11.22am. Subject, the guy who stopped. So, remember how I told you about the guy who gave me a hard time at the dance? The one who was such a jerk that I left. He's the one who helped me with my car. That's who you saw. His name is Declan Murphy. Do you know him? Don't answer that. Maybe that's too close to us figuring out each other. But even if you don't know him, I'm I'm sure you know of him. He's kind of notorious. When he knocked on my window in the pouring rain, I was terrified. I thought he was going to steal my car or murder me or use me to smuggle drugs or something. I don't even want to imagine. Okay, I almost went back and deleted that last sentence because I feel so terribly guilty about thinking those things. Now, in retrospect, those assumptions feel ridiculous. You know, you want to know what kind of egregious crime he committed after knocking on my window. He let me sit in his car and warm up while he got down on the ground in the rain and fixed my car. Then he followed me home to make sure I got there safely. Mum used to tell me how her goal with photography was to tell the whole story in one picture. I'm not sure if Mum ever felt she accomplished that. She came close. I know she felt pride about much of her work. And in many of the pictures, you can, you really can see several different layers of what's going on. It's all in the details. Like with her Syria photo. The joy in the children, the fear in the men, the sweat and the blood, the motion of the swings. Something terrible has happened, but the children can still find joy. But is that the whole story? Of course not. The more I think about it, I wonder if that was a crazy goal altogether. Can a picture ever tell the whole story? When I was sitting with Declan, he said something that I had been thinking about all weekend. He made a comment about how vulnerable people are protected by rules and guidelines, but people like him can be attacked without question because people assume he deserves it. Do you think there's any truth to that? If a rich kid taunts a poor kid for wearing old hand-me-downs, it's obviously cruel. If a poor kid mocks a rich kid for failing a test, is it less crueler? Is it a lesser cruelty because of their stations in life? Is everyone a one-dimensional target in some way? And if we are, is there a way to show more of ourselves? Or are we all trapped in a single photo that doesn't tell the whole story? notorious. Her words jab at my pride and I tug at my heart simultaneously. I wish I had told her. I'm glad I didn't. Maybe. The space with one of us knowing feels uncomfortable. I don't like keeping a secret from her. It feels wrong, like now I'm tricking her. Before we had a level playing field. Now I don't know what we have, what I have. I remember her sitting in the rain, crying behind the steering wheel of a broken down car. At the dance, I'd seen another beautiful, spoilt girl with nothing better to do than sneer at me, the lowlife who might tarnish her shine and sparkle. In the letters, I know a girl who peeks from beneath a glitter overlay, hiding the torment. It's hard to reconcile. It's hard to wrap my head around it. I know what it's like to need to strike first. I wish I'd seen through her bravado when we were standing by the punch bowl. I wish I'd known it was just a front. 
forever has this saying that he likes something about how a gentle tongue can break a bone. Knowing him, it's from the Bible. This is the first time it's ever made sense to me. What did she say to me in the car last night? You're pretty confrontational. I wish I'd been more patient with Julia. How could I have missed the turmoil that simmered just below her surface? How could she have missed mine? Alan is alone in the kitchen when I come downstairs around lunchtime. He is reading something on his tablet while eating a sandwich. Sunlight pours through the window behind him, and I'd say he looked like a normal suburban dad if he were any other guy. We both stop and look at each other. If we were walls, there'd be raised hackles and cautious circling every time we interact. We have to do the human thing and glare. Alan looks away first, which is usually the case. He's not intimidated by me, though. That would be too easy. Instead, he looks away like I'm not worth his time. We weren't always like this. I can't imagine Mum marrying him if we were. He made a few attempts to play the father figure in the beginning, but we must have been operating on different frequencies because I missed the signals. More likely, I ignored them. He tried to have a man-to-man conversation about school and responsibility, and, well, I really have no idea. I'd plug in my headphones and tune him out. I basically thought he was another transient boyfriend who'd be sending, sent packing sooner or later, so why waste the time? Now I feel Alan skipped stepfather and went straight to Warden. Really, I can't decide which bothers me more, that he plays the heavy or that mum lets him. I head for the cabinet and dig around looking for cereal. Mum is on this new health kick, so everything is organic and full of fibre, maybe protein. I would kill for some fruit loops, but instead, I grab a box of strawberry powros. When I open the refrigerator for some milk, I realise Alan is still watching me. I don't like him watching me. I think about Cemetery Girl's line, Juliet's line, I remind myself, about being trapped in a single photo. That's how I feel right now. Alan saw one side of me, one moment of my life, and that's all I'm reduced to now. That's all anyone sees. Declan Murphy, drunk driver, family ruiner. My snapshot captured forever in time. In a depressing thought, and my hackles go down. It's a depressing thought, and my hackles go down. Where's mum? Taking a nap. I hesitate when the milk poised to power. In the middle of the day, that's when naps usually happen. His voice is sharper than it needs to be. More acerbic. My hackles go up again, but the image of my mother getting sick in the back bathroom is still fresh in my mind. I wonder if he has any idea. He should have been the one taking care of her. He should be the one worrying about her now. You don't have to act like such a prick, Alan. Watch your language. He points a finger at me. I slam the milk back into the refrigerator and then, well, ready to get into it. He's not even looking at me. He's looking back at his tablet. I want to flip the table and send everything flying. I want to get in his face and scream, look at me, right now, look at me. My cell phone vibrates against my thigh and I jerk it out of my pocket. I press it to my ear without looking at the screen. The only person who ever calls me is Rev. Hey, I say. Hey, Murph. The voice is thickly accented and it takes me a second to place it. Melonhead. I haven't been able to break him of the nickname, 
but I found I prefer Murph to the over-enunciated Declan that turned out to be the alternative. He's never called me. I have panicked moment, thinking I'm supposed to be at community service right now, but then I remember it's Sunday. My heart sputters and finds a normal rhythm. I still have no idea why he's calling. What's up? I was wondering if you were doing anything this afternoon. I was thinking maybe I could use your help. Well, my neighbour could. I am so confused, and I can't think past the work we do on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You need me to mow today or something? He laughs like I've got s- said something truly funny. No, my friend needs help with his cars. You said you're good with engines, right? I frown. Sometimes, I mean, if it's something modern, you should probably take it to the shop. New cars have computers. It's not new. He's restoring it. It's a... He pauses and must put his hand over the phone to talk to someone else. But I hear him saying, what is this? A dog barks in the background. After another pause, he comes back on the line. A 1972 shovel. He thinks... 72 shovel. He thinks it's the carburetor. Carburetor. I grunt non-committedly and take a spoonful of cereal. People always think it's a carburetor. You do you know about carburetors? Frank says a little. So you want to come? You want to see if you can come help or what? It's been months since I worked on anything more complicated than Juliet's or old Honda, but my hands itch for a chance to get something challenging. I glance across the kitchen at Alan. If I walk out of here without clearing a first, I guarantee you'll you he'll be on the phone with someone in law enforcement, and I'll be handcuffed in handcuffs fifteen minutes later. He's still sitting there, staring at the tablet, ignoring me, but I listen to every word he lis- listening to every word I say. Tension hasn't left the kitchen, and it turns to a haze between me and him. I wish I could ask Mum. She's taking a nap. Fear twigs inside me. I don't want to think about it too hard, and I don't want to bother her if she needs to rest. I put my hand over the phone. Hey, Alan. My community service supervisor wants to know if I can help with something today. His eyes flick up. For an eternal moment, he regards me with an unreadable expression, and I'm certain he's going to say no, just to jack my chain. Then he swipes the screen. Go ahead. Make sure you're home before dinner. I almost dropped my spoon. Frank Melendez doesn't live far, but I'm surprised how much his neighbourhood looks like mine. Another older, middle-class suburb with short driveways, occasional sidewalks and fence yard, yards. For some reason, I expected him to live in the projects. Juliet's email digs at me, reminding me I'm just a guilty, as guilty of judging people on one snapshot of their lives. It's easy to find the right place, because I can see the glistening orange shovel from down the block. This guy had to have paid a fortune for the paint job because the shade of orange looks custom match. Two men are standing in the driveway, staring down at the engine block. A massive German shepherd sprawls on the pavement between them, ears pricked and alert. When I park, the dog trots over, tail wagging. I pull, put out my hand and wait, hoping I'm not about to lose her. She's all right, calls the man, staring next to the melon head. Guy is the welcome wagon. 
The dog confirms this by pressing her face under my hand. I rub her behind the ears and walk up walks walk up the driveway. Hey Murph, Madam Head says. This is my neighbour, John King. The man is middle aged with greying hair. He's wearing a lime green polo shirt and he looks like the kind of guy who goes golfing with Alan. I wanted to dislike him for that alone, but he gives me a warm smile and holds out a hand. Not the kind of reaction people usually give me. Murph, is it? Frank says you're an expert on engines. Declan Murphy. I shake his hand. He's got a firm grip, but it's not overpowering. And I don't know about expert. Frank only saw me fix the lawnmower. His smile falters the tiniest bit, but then he glances at my car. Did you have a hand re- rebuilding that charger? I did most of it myself. He gives a low whistle. The full smile is back. You're a lucky kid. I know guys who would kill for one of those. So do I. I shrug. My dad lucked out and found the body in half the engine junkyard. He started it when I was young. I finished it. I winced, thinking of the air-blasted body. Well, not the pain. Not yet. Saving up for custom? Sort of. I had been, yes, until Alan told my mother that every penny in my savings account should be used for my legal defence. I don't like where this line of questioning is going to lead, so I nod towards the shovel. This is beautiful. What's going wrong? He rubs the back of his neck and sighs. I put a new holly carburetor on her, and I can't seem to get it adjusted. I lean in for a closer look. The engine is spotless. I bet this guy takes better care of his car than he does of his wife. Yeah. What's it, do- what's it doing? The idle is all wrong, and I was looking for speed, but now it's gone sluggish. I've been tinkering with it for two weeks, and I keep and I was telling Frank I was ready to give it and give in and take it to a shop. That feels like cheating. The men chuckle. I can already see the problem, but I need to be sh- hear it to be sure. Can I turn it on? He hesitates, and I can see him trying to figure out whether he's letting me turn the key is a good idea. Sure, keys are in it. The interior is as stunning as the outside. You can smell the leather of the seats, the engine roars when I turn the ignition, and I listen, breaking down the sounds coming from under the hood. He's right about the idol. After a minute, I can smell burning fuel when I turn it off. John is watching me expectantly, and there's a light of challenge in his eyes. What do you think? I think your holly is too big. He chuckles again, but it sounds strained. What are you talking about? That's a 750, right? I think it's too big. When you were talking, I thought maybe it was a choke, but then I got to listen. I bet you'd do better with a 650. I could probably get it to run a little better, but... Wait a minute. The smile is completely gone. I just put that in. All it needs is some tuning. He reminds me more of Alan every minute. I gave you... it. Uh, you wanted my opinion. I gave it to you. You're telling me to get a whole new carburetor. He looks like I told him to get eat a fistful of sand. Well, yeah, you're drowning your engine. Like I said, I can try to adjust it. No, it's okay. He looks pissed, but I, can tell, I can't tell whether it's at himself or at me. I'll have the mechanic look at it tomorrow. I 
I bristle. I can feel the familiar tension crawl across my shoulders, travel up my neck and settle into my jaw. Frank is watching this interaction and his expression has lost the good humour too. Nothing wrong with a second opinion, right, Murph? Sure. I shrug, but this feels forced. A little girl's voice speaks from somewhere, sounding tinny. Can I get up? Merlin had pulls a baby monitor. Sorry. Charlie is currently barking, so that's why there was a pause. Okay, sorry. Merlin had pulls a baby monitor from his pocket. I've got to get back inside, John. He claps his friend on the shoulder. At least you've got some idea when you call the shop tomorrow, eh? Yeah, sure. John's jaw seems tight too. Thanks for your help, kid. You might as well be saying thanks for nothing. Before I can say anything, Melonhead waves me along. Come on, Murph, I'll get you some lemonade. It's bizarre to be inside his house. The aged brick front and beige siding look like every other house on the street. The interior is open with few walls and very neat and tidy. Just let me get Marisol, he says, leaving me in the living room. The fireplace doesn't have a mantle, but it is instead surrounded by varying shades of grey stone. A collage of photos hang in silver frames above it. Most of the pictures are of a baby girl who must be younger, Marisol, but one picture features a young, younger melon head with a beautiful woman hanging her arms round his neck. From their expression in the photograph, you can tell that time stops when they look at each other. Declan, a little girl shrieks with excitement, and then I have almost no warning before she tackles my legs. You came to play with me. If only girls my own age would react this way when I walk into a room. Sure, I say, we can play the lemonade game. Her nose wrinkles. The lemonade game? Yes, I drink some, and then you drink some, and then you win. She giggles. I like this game. Melonhead is watching her. You're very kind to her. I figure I can't piss her off by telling her she spent 500 bucks on a worthless upgrade. Piss me off, she parrots. What's piss me off? Her father's face darkens and I wince. Chagrin. Chagrin? Sorry. It's okay. Come sit down. When Marisol is settled with crayons and we're sitting with sweaty glasses on the table between us, Melonhead gives me a levelled look. Do you really think he needs a new carburetor? I shrug and take a sip from the glass. I know he does. Melonhead nods. Before you got here, he said he might have made a mistake. I thought, think he was hoping you'd tell him he was wrong. My eyebrows go way up, so he knew. I don't think he wanted to admit it to himself. He tinkers with that thing every weekend. But he's just a hobbyist. He pauses. You could really hear the problem. I trace lines of the condensation along the glass. It's not a big deal when you're used to it. I'm out of practice, but his was pretty obvious. You said your dad was a mechanic? I nod. A good one. He used to own a custom shop. Did restoration, hot rod upgrades, those kinds of things. I was in the shop with him almost every day. I could practically rebuild transmission before I could walk. I don't want to think about my father, but my brain is happy to supply me with memories. I remember getting into a heated argument with one of the shop guys over the correct ignition timing on a Chevy Impala. And dad could barely stop laughing long enough to tell the guys I was right. I was eight year old, eight, eight years old. 
He taught me to drive as soon as I was tall enough to work a clutch and see over the steering wheel at the same time. I would move cars in and out of the shop without thought. Darker memories slide in there too. The times I had to drive a lot farther than the distance from the back lot to the front of the garage. The times I would put on a ball cap and stretch to make myself as tall as possible because I was worried the cops would spot me and figure out a kid was driving. In retrospect, I wish a cop had caught us. Maybe Carrie would still be here. Where's your dad now? His voice is just a little careful. And normally I dodge the question because there's too much pain and guilt wrapped around these memories. But Melonhead doesn't judge me. If he did, he wouldn't have asked me to help out his neighbour. He wouldn't let me be around his daughter. This feeling of sanctuary is almost foreign. And it's something I usually only feel at Rev's. He's in prison. I say quietly, my eyes on my glass. He was drunk and he wrecked his car. My sister died. Melonhead puts a hand over mine. Ah, Murph, I'm sorry. The touch takes me by the sunrise and it's so unfamiliar that it's almost uncomfortable. I pull my hand away and rub the back of my neck. It's okay. It was a long time ago. Do you ever see him? I shake my head. Mum never goes, so I never do either. Your mum remarried, yes? Yes. How's that going? I look at him and give him a half smile. What are you, my court-appointed therapist now? No, I'm just trying to figure figure you out. I take a drink of lemonade. There's not much to figure out. You work hard. You don't give me much grief. You're smart. I don't get kids like you through the program much. I just don't want to be hassled. I don't think that's it. He pauses. You have a drinking problem, Murph? Obviously, I snort and drain more lemonade. I mean, you know my record, right? Yes, I do. Do you have a drinking problem? I shrug and shake my head. I can't remember the burn of whiskey as if... I can remember the burn of whiskey as if it happened yesterday. I don't remember much after that, but I still clearly remember the burn. No. Did you? I shake my head again. It was just one day, one stupid day, the second worst day of my life, in more ways than one. Do you want to talk about it? The room shrinks incrementally, and sweat has begun collecting between my shoulder blades. He's going to push, and I'm going to explode out of it, leaving a Declan-sized hole in the drywall. Not really, no. Hey, he puts a hand on my shoulder and gives me a gentle shake. Take it easy. I didn't mean to ramp you up. I take a breath and let go of the glass. I didn't realise how tightly I was gripping it until I let go. Sorry. Marisol bursts into the kitchen with papers in her hands. Declan, I drew you. She thrusts it in front of me. It's a colourful stick man with brown hair. This is amazing, I tell her. Somehow my voice is steady. Can you draw me another one? Yes. She runs out. The kitchen falls silent. My eyes fixed on the glass. Can I tell you one thing, Melonhead says. I swallow. Sure. One day isn't your whole life, Murph. He waits until I look at him. A day is just a day. I scoff and slouch in the chair. So what are you saying? That people shouldn't judge me on one mistake? Tell that to Judge Aurorus. 
He leans in against the table. No, kid, I'm saying you shouldn't judge yourself for it. He pauses. Do you have a court-appointed therapist? I give him a look. They'd have to drag me in handcuffs. No. His eyebrows go up. You think there's something wrong with having someone to talk to? I don't need someone to talk to. I'm fine. Everyone needs someone to talk to, kid. He hesitates. Do you have anyone at all? I trace another finger through the condensation on my glass, then lift my eyes to meet his. Yeah, I do. 